Hey, everybody. On today's episode, Ryan and I are going to be going deep on our favorite soccer-related conspiracies. We've got a lot of World Cups in there. We've got some Premier League stuff. We've got conspiracies from throughout history. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of The Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. And welcome to the Monday morning slash early afternoon slash evening edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me on the other end of the line is Mr. Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. How are you? I've got a question for you straight off the top. Are you Let's ready for it. this one? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you aware of Strava? No. Strava is the running app which uh, people get obsessed with. I'm mm-hmm. kind of obsessed with it myself. So you log all your runs. It shows you where you're going. It draws a map for you. It does all your stats. It's pretty great. So a few teams around the world who've sent their players home have instructed their players to use Strava and track themselves on Strava so they can have a good idea of what their players are doing, which makes sense, right? Um, and I found out that Millwall mm-hmm. are a team who have done this. My friend uh, Tom, who's a listener, hello Tom, is a Millwall supporter who's informed me of this. Uh, and he managed to find all of the players on Strava because none of them have set themselves to private on this. Wow. So if you want... <laughs> and it's, it's kind of weird because... If you look at where they run and where they go, you can pretty much work out where they live. That's fascinating. Can you see who's doing the best and who's doing the worst? You can. Because you you can set yourself to private, which I think they should. Maybe they have done by this point. But there's a good 11 or 12 Millwall players you can find on Strava if you so desire. And I'm assuming you use this app as well then to track all of your, your mileage. Are you still running every single day or most days? Uh, yeah, most most days I try and run. Yeah, it's important to try and uh, leave the four walls of my house, I, I find. And running's getting a lot easier because there's no one on the streets. Yes. And there's this kind of, there's, been, there's this accepted code now. Whereas when this thing first started, someone would still kind of walk on the sidewalk next to you. But now it's like you go, if someone's coming the other way, one of you moves out onto the road. Like yeah. that's like the accepted code now, which I quite like. And, and it is a weird, like uh, having uh, finished the English game at this point, I do feel this weird like civility, gentlemanly conduct of like, you're not going to, to cross the street. You're not going to move out of the way, like on the sidewalk. I, I feel like everyone is uncouth if they don't get out of the way or if they don't all kind of observe the six foot uh, measurement. I do think that that is, is, is a strange thing about going outside. I'm glad you're still running. I'm glad there are many people I saw cycling, using the empty streets to continue their cycling. Yeah. The app that I am currently u- using is uh, Pasta, which measures how much pasta you're consuming on a daily basis. Ah. And it measures it by the bucketful, which is about uh, how pa- I consume your it. pasta targets this week. I really have. I think I've 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 hit and exceeded them, uh, <laughs> much to uh, my body's chagrin. Uh, but we're not Very here good. to just talk about uh, our uh, policies and activities uh, during the 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 shutdown, lockdown, all things down. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in England uh, because sadly, it is not the Premier League coming back and us having live soccer to watch. Instead, it's Premier League clubs fighting with Premier League players. Slash unions fighting with the government, fighting with pundits. It's it's a lot of fighting going on. Ryan, can you explain maybe starting off with what's happening with uh, Premier League clubs and furloughing? 
Hey everybody, Taylor jumping in with a quick update. Uh, after we recorded this episode, Liverpool reversed their decision to use the government's furlough scheme to pay non-playing club staff, apologizing to fans for coming to the quote-unquote wrong conclusion. Uh, in an open letter to fans, CEO Peter Moore wrote, quote, We believe we came to the wrong conclusion last week to announce that we intended to apply to the coronavirus retention scheme and furlough staff due to the suspension of the Premier League football calendar and are truly sorry for that. Our intentions were and still are to ensure the entire workforce is given as much protection as possible from redundancy and or loss of earnings during this unprecedented period. We are therefore committed to finding alternative ways to operate while there are no football matches being played that ensures we are not applying for the government relief scheme, end quote. So, well done to Liverpool. After some obvious pressure from fans, the media, former players, Jamie Carragher, Dietmar Hamann, uh, very vocal in their criticisms. Uh, less so to Newcastle and Tottenham, who at time of recording are moving forward with their plans. And so you should keep that in mind as you listen to the rest of our chat about the way the process has been handled because I do still think it's relevant since there are clubs applying for this and sort of trying to get into the way they're operating and how they're operating and how they're thinking. But then obviously we go a little bit deeper on everything else that's been happening. So with uh, all that said, back to the show. It is all getting a bit messy in the Premier League and not the Argentine version. I mean, it's not it's not great. Basically, there's been a big thing over the past week with furloughing, which is mm-hmm. kind of a new word in my lexicon, but letting staff temporarily go. And I think as of now, three Premier League clubs have done it. Tottenham have furloughed all of their non-playing staff. Tottenham, who made record profits, uh, they announced a £69 million profit uh, on the tax year uh, in March, a few weeks ago. Uh, Newcastle have done the same thing, which you could... Very much expect of Mike Ashley, the man who tried mm-hmm. to keep his Sports Direct stores open throughout this because he claimed there as essential services for people to buy replica jerseys throughout this thing. Who knew? Uh, and kind of controversially, Liverpool are the most recent team to have furloughed their, their non-playing staff. Um, Liverpool, who who try and abide by the spirit of Bill Shankly. Bill Shankly was a famous Scottish right. socialist. And the controversy here, for those who don't know, is kind of... The furloughing means that the government are picking up the bill. In the UK, the UK government have agreed that any staff of any any company who are on PAYE, pay as you earn, which is what they call it out there, will have 80% of their wages paid during this period by the government. So if someone is furloughed by a, comp- a company, um, 80% will be paid by the government. So there's a, there's a lot of controversy by the fact that these very rich Premier League sides who are ultimately not going to go under during this period are using taxpayer money because it is taxpayer money because at one point the taxpayer is going to have to pay for that 80% down the line and they're using that money to fund themselves when they shouldn't have to when this rule was kind of brought in for small to medium-sized businesses not gigantic international Premier League sides so there's a lot of controversy going on with that one and and it's also the numbers involved Taylor they've worked out that this if they do this for say three months Liverpool for example they might save a million pounds their annual wage bill is three hundred and ten million pounds. They they gave forty three million pounds to agents last year, so it's a very it's a it's a big hit in terms of the, the optics here, and probably not a big hit financially in the bigger picture. So it's not great what's happening. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting to me as an outsider, an American uh, who's like only been to England very briefly, uh, to see this within the context of having just finished Sunderland Till I Die, which does sort of connect in my mind simply because there's the idea in that that like Sunderland is meant to be more than a club, that it's meant to be this sort of institution for the fans, that it's, it's about the fans more so than it's about the owner or the players, and it's meant to be this idea of community and community protects itself, uh, itself 
itself and helps each other. Um, whereas for me, an American, like there's a reason why Americans care about the Premier League. It's because it's very marketable and it's got a lot of television rights and a lot of money coming in. And with mm-hmm. that comes a lot of individual ownership. And so it's almost this weird thing to me of like I look at it and I, and I see it as like, yeah, well, of course, businesses are going to take advantage of tax loopholes. That's, you know, what businesses always do. Uh, and then you kind of see it from the opposite perspective of, well, if you see it as a club and a family and not a business, then you see it as the family, the club taking advantage of policies to sort of take advantage of their employees. And it and it becomes more clear to me why there's such a level of frustration with what these clubs are doing. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of clubs, a lot of fans of clubs will support their team till the end, if, even if they make a questionable decision. But even, say, Liverpool fans are kind of turning against the club saying this isn't a good move. And, you know, it's interesting because... Let's look at Liverpool, who would support Luis Suarez when he was there through thick and thin, uh-huh. a man who was basically proven to be a racist, and they still support him. And then you get something like this, where it's kind of the tide is turning on it. It's interesting to see how this is the, almost the camel that's breaking the the camel that's breaking the straw's back. That's not right. <laughs> Straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's just it, it. I think it speaks to, in my mind, sort of owners who. Uh, like are coming from a business background, protecting their business assets, which is what I'm going to assume people saw Suarez as uh, the the various ownership groups there. But then when it comes to taking advantage of like offers from the government, they're going to do that too. And then I think are going to be confused when there is backlash, because in their minds, they're just taking advantage of a government program the way they're supposed to, or not taking advantage of, but utilizing. And then I think to everybody else, it's you're taking advantage uh, in the negative way of this thing that's meant to be for, as you said, small, medium businesses, not necessarily uh, global juggernauts who could easily probably afford to continue to employ staff who are on, I'm going to assume, not 200,000 pounds a week, the the cooks and the cleaners and such. It, exactly. As the forecasts say that it might save them about a million pounds if this is for, say, three three or four months, which is a drop in the ocean for these kind of clubs, but not for the taxpayer pool, which because that's because that's where this money is going to come from. So it, it, either way, it doesn't look good. And kind of running concurrently to this, Taylor, we have the uh, the, the news that the, the Premier League clubs have failed to reach an agreement on a 30 percent wage cut for players. They failed to reach that agreement with the PFA. And once again, the optics don't look good on this, but there is another side to it because mm-hmm. the PFA and the players are arguing that, you know, uh, that would, if, if this was over a 12 month period, that would equate to uh, 500 million pounds in wage reductions. And that's a lot of tax mm-hmm. that will be going to the UK government. 200 million based, pounds, I believe. 200 million pounds, they estimated that to be. So 12 months is, is maybe not fair. Even if it's a quarter of that, that's 50 million pounds that the UK government isn't getting in tax. So I can see the other side of that. So it seems like the onus is very much on players to take their own initiatives here. And it made me think, do you remember when Juan Mata started the thing where he gives 1% of his mm-hmm. wages to good the causes? common goal, I think it is. Common goal, correct. I wonder if there's going to be a similar thing like that, which comes from player-led initiatives. Yeah, I think, I think Gary, Gary Lineker, or maybe Gary Neville, I forget which Gary it was, uh, indicated that that was coming. And we've seen players, uh, Marcus Rashford has done a lot uh, in the Manchester community. Jordan Henderson is the one who I think was setting it up that players could voluntarily contribute to a fund. And I think maybe that is where some of the player frustration and the reaction we're seeing is coming from. Uh, Wayne Rooney being front and center in that one, he had an, uh, mm-hmm. an editorial in, I forget which newspaper it was, there are several in England, so I don't feel bad about that, <laughs> but basically arguing that players are being scapegoated, that, uh, like, 
you basically they're being asked to give over their wages, but simultaneously attacked for not doing so automatically and for making so much money when it's like, yeah, we're a product of the system. You all agreed to pay us this money. You can't then be mad when we now have that money versus mm-hmm. the people who are paying us the money. The person signing the check, it's the Chris Rock joke of Wayne Rooney is rich. The person who signs his check is wealthy. That person could probably be doing more to uh, help the situation. And instead, the individual players are being attacked, which is sort of the go to for the British press when they don't know what else to attack. And it does then seem like it's maybe the government taking advantage of that. Uh, Health Secretary uh, Matt Hancock argued that players should play their part. And I think there's a feeling of like, yeah, we're trying to. You all didn't really give us the opportunity. And now you're saying, oh, well, we haven't upheld our end of the bargain. When in reality, like we were trying to find our own solutions. We're happy to help. And then Wayne Rooney's point was, I, Wayne Rooney, have way more money than a lot of other players at Derby County. Asking us all to take a uniform wage cut is slightly unfair because I can afford it. But some other people cannot. Yeah, and there's there is definitely nuance to this because when you look at the headline and it's Premier clubs, Premier League clubs haven't given a thirty percent wage cut. They're going to keep all the money themselves. You can think, oh, these millionaire kids, they should be giving away their money. But there is definitely nuance to it because there is a tax implication and there is the fact that some players. I'm sure there might even be a majority of players who want to do this, but they haven't somehow haven't reached this agreement because there there is a I'll use that word once again a bit of nuance to this situation but I hope that the optics improve because you look at t, uh, look at German soccer and mm-hmm. they, they don't seem to be, I, I'll just say they don't seem to be having these kind of problems clubs are helping each other and wage wage cuts seems to be happening and it doesn't it seems to be like more naturally occurring there if that makes sense yeah it does it does I think to your point about there being nuance I think it's anytime that it's an easy narrative to go with I think at least some newspapers will take it and I think that if you can just say 200,000 pound a week footballer angry that he's being asked to give up his 30% wage you know that's going to get some clicks you know it's going to sell some papers because people want to hear about this selfish athlete when in reality there's a lot more nuance of well here's why and there's this and there's extenuating circumstance and also I already give a bunch of money to charities like that doesn't really move the needle as much as just selfish players are selfish and I think that is probably where some of it comes into play that said there are definitely some players who are not covering themselves in glory Uh, Jack Grealish uh, got in trouble uh, with Aston Villa for breaking uh, quarantine. Uh, and then there's Kyle Walker. Let's talk about Kyle Walker, Ryan Bailey. So, Kyle Walker was lonely a week or so ago. <laughs> he, was, he was playing Monopoly, oh and he needed at least two other players. Obviously. So he, he, um, he, I don't think any of his friends were available, so he called to, I think, one of his one of his uh, international colleagues or former international colleagues who shan't be named maybe gave him some numbers of some people uh, he could he could invite over maybe pay them for it pay them for the service mm. of coming over to play Monopoly with him that's what happened right oh yeah obviously they were just playing Monopoly but yes the allegation is that Kyle Walker had uh, two sex workers uh, over to his uh, home the morning after they left is when he tweeted out the thing about how like people need to respect boundaries and stay at home and do their parts and so there's much yeah. sort of reaction to that of the hypocrisy of Kyle Walker. Man City came out with their own statement that was sort of like, the way I read it was like, well, these are allegations and we're not sure, but yeah, he did it. Uh, Kyle's actions in this matter uh, have directly contrave- contravened our efforts. Uh, we are disappointed to hear the allegations. Note Kyle's swift statement and apology and we'll be conducting an internal disciplinary procedure. So it sort of felt like we didn't like hearing this. It's only an allegation, but yeah, he probably did it. We're going to look into it. Uh, Kyle Walker, uh, for his part, issued an apology saying basically that uh, my position as a professional footballer brings the responsibility of being a role model. As such, I want to apologize to my family, friends, football club supporters, and the public for letting them down. Uh, yeah, so Kyle Walker uh, b- breaking some rules, but then, you know, still trying to be morally upstanding by telling people to stay at home. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a fine balance there, isn't it? There? Really is. um, it really is. It really is. What I like is how the sex worker has taken the moral high ground in this story. Because the quote here, uh, I'll, I'll read you the quote. One of the escorts, Louise McNamara, 21, told the son, Kyle should really know better. On the one hand, he's inviting strangers round to his house for sex. And the next day, he's lecturing everyone on the need to stay safe. Um, you, you know, you went round there. Yeah, and right. You, 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 you <laughs> engaged in this as well. <laughs> I always, uh, in the American office, uh, when uh, Ryan's character is trying to like have his like, character resurrection, he always talks about himself in the past tense as though it were a separate person of like, yeah, that guy was a real jerk, man. He really didn't hold himself accountable. <laughs> and I feel like that's what's happening here. It's just sort of uh, talking about yourself as though you're a different person. Side note, one of my, the best moments in my life was when Kelly in the office said, Ryan Bailey Howard. Because <laughs> oh, you got your middle name in there? Or you got your last name in there? I got my whole name in there, pretty much. Oh, yeah, yes, you did. I forgot about the Ryan part somehow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, Ryan, I know you, uh, one more thing we wanted to talk about in England before we talk about uh, today's major topic, which is conspiracy theories. Uh, mm-hmm. You had your idea for how to restart the Premier League, maybe combining some other people's ideas with a little bit of uh, Ryan Bailey Howard uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nuance and uh, ingenuity. Before we get to hear about Ryan J. Bailey Howard's plan for uh, the Premier League and how to resolve their looming fixture congestion if and when the season resumes, uh, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings the food you're craving right to your door. Uh, Ordering is easy. You open the DoorDash app, you choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. So you don't have to sort of engage. You can basically wait for the food to be delivered then you can collect it, go in and eat your favorite food. With over 300,000 partners in the United States, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national chains like Chipotle or Wendy's. Um, But that is the key here, is that you can do the bigger chains, but then you can also support your local independent restaurants. It's a way so that you can get the food, you can keep them, uh, getting some business, some money coming in, but then you also get to eat the food that you enjoy without having to like make any contact. So it's a safe and convenient way for you to continue to get delivery and eat more than just what you might be cooking, because if you're not the best cook, you're not getting the best food. Uh, right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code TSS. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code TSS. Uh, one more time, DoorDash app, $5 off your first order with the code TSS. Thank you very much to DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, we do greatly appreciate it. Uh, now, over to Ryan to explain his crazy theory for how to see out the Premier League season. Well, if this doesn't go down well, this is a Ryan Bailey Howard idea. But uh-huh. otherwise, hear me out on this one. When we, t- when we spoke last week about Yara Soccer Island uh, and isolating all the games on an island uh, and getting them all played, it sounded silly, but it got me thinking, what if there was a nugget of a good idea in there? Oh, boy. So there's a, there is a holiday park, a series of holiday parks in the UK called Centre Parks. Have you ever heard of them, Taylor? I had not until you put this into the show notes. I have since looked them up. And for Americans, they're like akin to like Great Wolf Lodges, if people know that one. It's sort of like exactly. indoor water park, hotel, amusement park sort of things. Exactly that. Uh, Great Wolf Lodge is the most is the closest thing you get out here. Okay. But it's a whole entire village. Like, I, you have like everyone has a little villa that you live in in okay. Centre Parks. It's an entire village. They're all in the forest. They're isolated from the rest of society. Oh boy! And they're all closed at the moment. Taylor. Oh boy! Okay. So, what if we get all the teams, all the players, all the staff, all the TV production crews to move into a Centre Parks for two weeks? They isolate. <laughs> Self-isolate in their own villas, all of them, mm-hmm. because these things are big. 
And then once they're all clear to play, they all start playing each other. And if anyone is uh, is found test positive for COVID-19, you know, they're isolated anyway. They're taken out of center parks. See you later. We'll carry on without you. How does that sound in terms of getting things done, playing behind closed doors? Everyone's isolated from everyone else. Is that a dumb idea or is it a good idea? Because the more I think about it, the more I think I'm a genius. Well, so a couple of questions. Are, are there football pitches like built into the center park or like would you have to add that separately or would they be playing somewhere else? There are pitches. I have, okay. I have played on them at center parks okay. and I'm sure you could construct one if not. And then why this versus just a standard hotel or standard sort of like luxury resort where everybody has their own little space? Is it just because you also want the reality show component of cameras watching them all interact and swim in the pools and and do all these things? Or are they just isolated the whole time? You're just getting uh, footage of them in their isolation booths. I'm a major shareholder in Center Park, so I just want to There it is. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's because I thought it was, I just was thinking of a place where there's enough hotel rooms where people could isolate realistically from one another. And it could be anywhere. It could be on Soccer Island if we build the hotel rooms. But right now, that infrastructure exists in the UK. So having having just like refused to criticize Premier League players for uh, refusing to give up their salaries, I will also say, though, that they do have a little bit of like uh, an idea that their money brings, you know, very high end things. And so this does make sense from the standpoint of like, otherwise, you've got them living in like, temporary facilities or something like that. Like, I doubt they're going to be living in tents and yurts and such and then playing uh, soccer. They're going to require nice accommodations. So maybe this does sort of strike that balance. And then if you add a, a pitch in there as well, uh, and then they still have the pool time afterwards. If they have tested uh, negative or not shown any symptoms, then they can Definitely. go to the pool. And you only need you only need a couple of rules. Like the first rule is if anyone tests positive, they have to leave center parts and they're isolated anyway, so they won't infect anyone else. The second rule is Kyle Walker can't have any guests. <laughs> I like the second one. The first one, I, I must admit, it sounds a little dystopian future. Like, are they just like sort of collected, driven to the gates, and then like kicked out, like literally removed from the facility and just uh, forced to fend for themselves? Yeah, I think it's kind of there's a Hunger Games element. To okay, it, definitely. <laughs> All right. Brian, I think these Brian are Bailey's extra- solution, a Hunger Games element. These are extraordinary times, Taylor, and we need extraordinary solutions, and this is one. <laughs> so why am I not the chief of the FA right now? I don't know. I mean, the position could soon be vacant. We'll see how the negotiations <laughs> with furloughing and wages and everything go. Maybe Ryan Bailey Howard, Ryan J. Bailey Howard uh, gets, gets an opportunity there. Uh, and if he did, I'm sure some people would have some uh, lavish theories about how that happened. Maybe even some uh, outright conspiracy theories, which is the other thing we're going to be talking about today, Ryan. Uh, you, a couple weeks ago, sent me a list of like possible topics for shows we could be doing uh, during this time period. We've already done the worst uh, transfers, but the one that really made me very excited was uh, some of our favorite uh, conspiracy theories relating to soccer throughout history. Uh, We're not necessarily going to do like a top 10 or anything like that because there are many, uh, some stronger than others. Some are just sort of me like, uh, you know, venting about the U.S. Federation. Uh, But we're going to go through a few of our favorites, uh, talk about the talk them out, see maybe how likely we think they are. Ryan, why don't you start us off? I'm assuming you've got some absurd ones in there. There's a mixture here. There's some of the greatest hits that people would have heard, and there's some utterly absurd ones. I'll, I'll start off by saying I quite—I'm not like a tin hat, tin foil hat wearing kind of person, but I do like hearing about a conspiracy theory. I, I've read into you know Paul McCartney actually died in 1966. You know the the Roswell landings. Neil uh-huh. Armstrong didn't really go to the moon. Taylor Rockwell was the Trump whistleblower. All these you know well circulated <laughs> uh, conspiracy theories that are out there, and I, I really like the soccer ones too. So I'll kick off with mm-hmm. one that people might not have heard necessarily barcelona fc oh, wow. barcelona mm-hmm. sent coded message 
coded messages to mm-hmm. the Syrian militia via their on-field formations. So this is the one that, like, I am similar to you, that I enjoy conspiracy, I enjoy theories about it. I, when they get so, like, like minute and simultaneously far-reaching is where they sort of lose me. This is the one that I think you see bandied about a lot on the internet of, like, the best conspiracy theory is that this is always number one, and it's mm. the one that immediately makes me tune out because it is, to my mind, so ridiculous. But, Ryan, please give us the background on how Barcelona were uh, coded operatives for the Syrian militias. Oh, well, I mean, it's well known that Barcelona have helped assist smuggle weapons to rebels fighting against President Bashar al-Assad in, uh, and his security forces in Syria. But I'll explain how it happened. Of course, uh, it was, This yes. is the 2011-12 season uh, and a state-owned Syrian TV channel. They claim that Barcelona were doing that, assisting with smuggling weapons. Uh, and they were doing so by putting coded messages in their formations like they were... There were, it was like some tiki-taka tactics attack, if that makes sense to you. <laughs> Try so, saying that quickly. I, um, I mean, I, 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 first of all, tiki-taka tactics attack is yeah. uh, my new favorite phrase. So I'm going to go ahead and write <laughs> that down. Please, please continue. Uh, basically, the, the, this Syrian uh, TV channel, they had screen grabs of Barcelona on the field. And they, I, I don't read in, in the, uh, what's, is it Sanskrit? I'm not sure what the, uh, the, the, the type is that they use there. I would assume Arabic? Uh, Arabic. Sounds good. Yeah, I don't read Arabic, and um, it, it, it's explaining. Did you say how- Sanskrit? <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I just said that because uh, I'm, I'm picturing what the what the uh, what the script looked like, and it's definitely more Arabic. Uh, dude, <laughs> if it helps you at all, when I like when I was first going to Turkey, I was speaking to a Turkish person once, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't even know Arabic," and they're like, "Well, that's good because we speak Turkish." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm smart." <laughs> well, for Syria is the country directly below Turkey, and it's the one next to Iraq. And uh-huh. Al-Assad is the president. Oh, we're trying to establish your bona fides now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know things. Uh, yeah, he's been president for like two decades. Like he's a dick. Dictator. Uh-huh. He's bad. He's a, he, he's he's viewed as kind of not a not a great dude. No, and his father um, and, before him. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And it, yeah, the, this theory was that Barcelona were aiding him, and I, I presume Barcelona must be big in Syria. Any ideas? I mean, so was it the idea that like the tactical sort of like patterns like like told Syria like what tactics to utilize in the battlefields? Like, wh- wh- what were the messages exactly from what you understand? I think that is essentially what it is. Like, okay. Guardiola's down there on his haunches on the sideline. Guys, Iniesta, stay back, keep your shape. That was a Dutch accent. I don't know what I was doing there, <laughs> uh, but telling them to keep their shape because otherwise the uh, the rebels might not uh, understand which which weapons they were supposed to be receiving where. But, I mean, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea. I have to say, though, just because, like, the idea, the idea that like soccer is utilizing these like patterns and shapes in a sort of way that like maybe is like slightly tactical. Like, yes, it's called tactics. Like, yes, of course, mm. there's going to be like have a line so that they can't get past that line. Like, that's that can be applied to military uh, practices. Yes, uh, the French tried to employ it; it didn't quite work. Uh, but yeah, I think. I think it is sort of a general crossover of like soccer requires tactics as do military operations. Yeah, I think I, I'm just picturing, say, say the guy sitting there eating his cereal, watching some Barcelona highlights in Syria and sort of the spoon drops into the bowl and the milk splashes everywhere. <laughs> oh, my God, they're telling us to smuggle weapons. I must alert the authorities. Oh, boy. All right. So we're off to a strong start. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to say about Barcelona's uh, involvement in Syrians, Syrian munitions smuggling? Uh, I do not believe they even gave it the credit to deny it. Okay. 
That that makes sense to me. Well, one that I, I slightly believe in more uh, relates to the 1978 World Cup, specifically everything about the 1978 World Cup. Uh, it was more or less washed over in United Passions, the film that you and I dissected and gave us both headaches. Uh, this is the scene in which Seth Blatter, Tim Roth, is concerned because the sponsors are concerned about 78 World Cup, to which Xiao Havelange responds, like, it'll be fine. It's The children need it. The people of Argentina need it. What they're alluding to is the dictatorship of General Jorge Rafael. Rafael uh, Videla, dictator from 1976 to 1981. Uh, you have the like numerous torture facilities. You have the disappeared. People are just like pulled off buses in broad daylight from their homes and never heard or seen from again. Uh, and this is happening while the World Cup is being played. And there are many, many allegations, uh, none of which, as far as I know, have ever been like proven or definitively proven, but are sort of talked about as mm-hmm. open secrets. Uh, these would be uh, the the ones that I think uh, I think is in uh, Soccer Against the Enemy. It's in there. It might be how soccer explains the universe but it's the story of uh, argentine players supposedly being given amphetamines that two players had to cool down for like two hours after a game because that was the only way they could get their heart rates to go down and then the very famous one uh would be uh, allegedly supposedly uh in the doping tests an argentine player tested positive for being pregnant that is the story <laughs> uh whether uh, he, he was not, as far as I know, oh. but the idea was that the urine was uh, swapped out. And then the very notorious one, uh, which uh, is somewhere between conspiracy and like likely situation. Um, I feel it, like it tips more towards likely situation. Yeah. Uh, Dictator Videla and uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Henry Kissinger uh, did a pre-match tour of like in uh, Argentina's, like basically their penultimate, their most important game against Peru. They needed to win 4-0. Uh, Videla and Kissinger visited the players in the Peru locker room. Uh, again, I believe that is historical, historically documented. What has since come out from a Uruguayan, uh, excuse me, a Peruvian senator claims that the match was fixed over uh, grain uh, importation and the mm. money involved there, that basically Argentina were threatening Peruvian grain imports unless the match went a certain way. Uh, as I said, Argentina needed to win 4-0 because they knew Brazil had beaten Poland 3-1 earlier in the day. They won 6-0 uh, and Peru fielded an Argentine-born goalkeeper who denied any wrongdoing, but there is much conspiracy and conjecture about this World Cup. It will not be the only World Cup that makes my list, but the 1978 World Cup is rife uh, for conspiracy theorist conjecture, some of which maybe seems slightly likely. This is a doozy because this is back when um, there wasn't sort of a a knockout structure to get to the final. This was the second round. It went first round, second round, and this was the second round where Brazil and Argentina were in the same group. uh, And uh, funnily enough, Argent- uh, Argentina finished above Brazil mm-hmm. in the group to advance to the final instead of Brazil because of that 6-0 win. Right. And this is a big reason why the, pen- the, the final game of the groups are now played at the same time. Yeah. So that things like this can kind of be avoided. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'll say is that Henry Kissinger, a.k.a. the guy from my favorite Future Armor episode. <laughs> wait, 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 which episode? Where they go to war over the chewing gum. <laughs> He's in that one. I'm assuming he's a head in a jar? He is a head in a jar. Of yep. course he is. And they go uh, against those, those bouncing balls, and yes. the balls are saying things like, oh, I bounced 1.5 meters, then I bounced 0.5 meters, then I bounced 1 meter. 
I hope I'm making myself clear. <laughs> I for uh, remember that one specifically for the bomb being set off by Bender utilizing his favorite word. His daffodil. second favorite word, of course, being daffodil. <laughs> yes. What <laughs> uh, an episode. It's a great episode, and that's a great show. Uh, so Futurama aside, 1978 World Cup aside, Ryan, yep. uh, what's your next conspiracy you want to talk about? Why don't we go to some more Argentina-Brazil action? Of course. Action? Yeah. We'll, we'll take it forward a few years. Because, you know, these guys, there's no love lost between them. Mm-mm. As a matter of fact, uh, neighbors in South America who don't get along terribly well. Uh, this is Italia 90 and the allegation that Branco of Brazil, who and also of Middlesbrough later on, funnily enough, um, of course. he had his water spiked. Uh, there was a game between Brazil and Argentina uh, and the left-back Branco, he was, he was convinced that um, Argentina's physio, Miguel de Lorenzo, was while he was attending to a, a stricken Argentinian player, he gave him a water bottle. Why you take a water bottle from an opponent is another thing, but hey. Two days later, Branco said he felt dizzy and sick after drinking what he believed to be tranquilizer-laced water intended just for him. And Argentina in that goal uh, in that game, they scored late on and they went to the quarterfinals uh, of Italian 90 um, at at Brazil's expense. This was in the group stage. This game happened. And um, they've not been letting it go. In 2005, I believe Maradona said, look, I'm not saying it didn't happen. So kind of, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also, the Brazilian FA uh, sent a dossier to FIFA in 2005, which is 25 years later. <laughs> to um, Sorry, 15 years later. Get yeah. my math right today. 15 years later. So they've, they've, they've not let it go. Let's say that. Which, which you know, is fair, because if you feel like there has been an obvious slight, I mean, Americans still haven't forgiven Torsten Frings for uh, obviously deliberately handballing the ball in the 2002 World Cup because he's obviously. a cheater, and we never will. Uh, this one, though, like, I'm going to put my own spin on it and suggest that knowing what, like, we think we know about the 1978 World Cup in which they were using amphetamines to increase their performance, I, I, I do think from, from, like, my, I shouldn't say my experience, but my understanding is that uh, if you were taking too many amphetamines and you you are dehydrated, it can produce a nauseated, dizzy, lightheaded sort of feeling. And that would make far more sense to me. Why would Argentina have tranquilizers aside from a long-term plan of uh, maybe we'll have an opportunity to give one to an opponent and then they'll be out of it? I feel like more likely is he drank one, if this were to happen at all, allegedly, possibly, maybe, speculation. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to cover us legally. I'm sure that worked. Uh, would be that maybe they gave him one that was accidentally had a bunch of amphetamines in it and he being dehydrated already... It had the inverse effect of sort of knocking him out a little bit, making him feel lightheaded and a little bit woozy, which would then maybe make more sense as to why they were like, well, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Like, maybe he drank something. Who knows? Maybe he just drank uh, amphetamines. But either way, that is a a lingering uh, allegation conspiracy that I, I do enjoy just because it's always made me wary to share water bottles with anybody. Thanks for the analysis, Dr. Rockwell. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I do my best. Um, <laughs> I will move us away from, from drugs for the moment to talk about one that is sort of, I think, my not my own creation, but it's one that I, I definitely sort of believe by piecing together a few different things. Mm-hmm. And it relates to Julian Green, it relates to Jurgen Klinsmann, and it relates to Landon Donovan. Go on. Um, I, I have always believed, since Julian Green was included in the 2014 uh, World Cup squad, uh, this is Julian Green, who had not yet played for Bayern Munich, was in the Bayern Munich Academy. We had lots of uh, excitement about, lots of enthusiasm about. I know that sounds strange to you, Ryan, but occasionally American fans get really excited about a player without really knowing much about them, put a lot of hopes on them, and then it doesn't really work out. I don't know if you have ever experienced that before, but it does happen yeah. from time to time. Uh, and my feeling was always that uh, Julian Green was basically guaranteed a spot on the World Cup roster by Jurgen Klinsmann 
if he chose to play for the United States in time, as opposed to uh, keeping his options open to play for Germany. Um, now, that, like, in and of itself is not that big of a conspiracy. I think a lot of people feel that way. Where I kind of connect dots is that I, I think Jurgen Klinsmann had a longstanding dislike of Landon Donovan. I think part of that relates to him sort of, like, not prioritizing soccer. We've talked about that before. Daryl and I have about how he, he does his, his sort of walkabout. He takes his sabbatical from, from soccer for a year. That it, like, he, similar to Jordan Morris, I think after a few failed attempts in Europe. Morris didn't have the failed attempts, but more so that Donovan was content to stay in the United States. He didn't really want to go push himself, which we know Jurgen Klinsmann didn't like. But I do buy into the idea that Jurgen Klinsmann, when he becomes manager of Bayern Munich, brings Lennon Donovan over. He thinks that this is going to be the next kind of big signing. He's going to be this big impact player. And when Donovan doesn't really like have the success that was expected and flames out pretty spectacularly. Mm. Uh, it, 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 I think for Jurgen Klinsmann is maybe a way of seeing it as like, this is why things went wrong. It's not my fault. It was the players turned on me. And then this guy who I brought over to be this next thing didn't work out. And I do sort of believe that there's a longstanding antipathy from Klinsman to Lennon Donovan. It's, it explains why uh, Jonathan Klinsman, Jurgen Klinsman's son, sent that tweet kind of like laughing that Donovan didn't make the team, which he then had to apologize for. But it always sort of connecting the dots made sense to me that if you're Jurgen Klinsman, you don't really like Lennon Donovan. You blame him for some of your past mistakes and failures. And you have the opportunity to bring in this new like German-American international who's going to not play for Germany but play for the United States. And you have the opportunity to sort of, sort of bring in this next level player or perceived next level player who's going to raise the program and you can do so at the expense of Landon Donovan who you don't have that much love for in the beginning then you're going to do that and I feel like all those pieces sort of fit in my mind but I'm also aware that this is the type of thing that Daryl would look at me skeptically and then probably move on quickly from the pieces all fit in my mind too the way you've explained it but you know he could have gone another way he could have put Donovan in the squad and then gave him the tranquilizer filled water bottle See how things panned out. <laughs> yeah, he put he drugs his own player, then he brings in Julian Green, who's had the <laughs> amphetamine water bottle, and then he Ooh, is uh, he's go. up and good to go. Now it's all connecting, right? We're bringing it all together. But the idea of Klinsman promising a World Cup spot to Julian Green if he chose the USA, that sounds mm-hmm. like a pretty standard transaction, though, right? Yeah, that must happen all the time. Yeah, I think so. I think because we do know that there are like other outside considerations when it comes to uh, roster construction. I think usually for friendlies, if there's a, a player who needs to be maybe in the window or needs to kind of have their profile elevated or maybe they need to have a national team cap for whatever reason, there will be some of those considerations factored into roster selection. But I think guaranteeing somebody a spot so that they'll play for the USA having not played for them previously, that is where maybe uh, like uh, like alarms are raised, at least in my mind. But it's certainly not the uh, global conspiracy that is Barcelona sending Syrians tactics. So I think that still reigns supreme. <laughs> Ryan, what, what have you got next for us on the conspiracy? Uh, before list? I move on, I'll just say that a few years ago, I interviewed Julian Green when he was mm-hmm. on um, one of those ICC tours with Bayern Munich. And it was baffling. It, you could even see sort of Ancelotti feeling a bit baffled about it. Like they held all these megastar players and everyone wanted to talk to Julian Green. And it felt like, I'm not doing Julian Green a disservice to say mm-hmm. it felt like a bit unbalanced the, mm-hmm. the interest he was getting anyway he and he was um <clears throat> quite boring to speak to anyway i'm gonna move on uh Calciopoli <laughs> is my next uh, conspiracy theory oh okay um, I, I think this one happened right well Calciopoli did happen mm-hmm. but did you know it was engineered entirely by inter milan oh boy oh boy i've it's, got a it's always, inter milan. it's always inter milan's fault i don't know why they can blame for everything 
Everything is into Vlad's fault, particularly uh-huh. this. Um, obviously, Calciopoli scandal of 2006 was where Juventus were one of several teams who were punished for their part in a big old match-fixing network that involved rigging games by picking favourable refs. We all know what happened, relegation and two titles taken away, even though they don't really feel those titles were taken away. There's a lot of people who feel that this was all just a big setup by their friends at Internazionale with a conspirazione from Milano. So um, there's, there's a lot of people, you could call them crazy people, in Turin, Taylor, who the staunch defenders of Juventus who say there's no evidence that Luciano yeah. Moggi made the phone calls with officials that he was accused to have made to pick the fable referees and that the system he supposedly rigged never actually worked. This was all just designed by Inter to bring down Juve and ensure they had a clear path to Serie A, glo- Serie a glory. And that theory is kind of supported by the fact that Inter won the Scudetto five times running when the scandal yeah. hit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's strengthened by that, but it's also weakened by the fact that it's complete nonsense. Yeah, it's also weakened by the fact that it is uh, fans of one team who were found to be in the wrong and punished accordingly, uh, needing a way to not be wrong and thus blaming it on one of their biggest rivals. And that's what it always felt like to me. Um, And and it does. This is more than anything else, just a reminder of why I never want to be that level of fan of anything, because like I. All right. I really, really, really uh, like my wife and enjoy being married to her. But if there is, like, very, very valid evidence that she, I, I don't know, conducted some political conspiracy, or let, let's go with the obvious one. Like, let's find out that, like, my wife murdered Ryan Bailey. Sorry, Ryan. Like, well, I'm not going to be like, well, Ryan, you know, like, he maybe orchestrated this to make this happen. I feel like I love my wife, but maybe not at the expense of, uh, of you know, defending her on all accounts. It's the Bill Burr joke about his uh, playing baseball with his kid, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to turn you in for murder. It's, this isn't Dexter. Like, yes. Like, there's got to be repercussions, and I feel like if you sort of are so like in love with a team or organization or what have you that you're willing to overlook all of the sins in order to sort of continue that connection, then that connection is faulty to some degree. Why did your story turn to me getting murdered? You know, so, sometimes things got to happen, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> but if that does happen, I, I assume, then we will have our own new conspiracy theory. So I'm going to need well, you to not be murdered in the coming days, please. All right, maybe we should tread carefully when we talk about these things. Then. But can we move from Italian soccer to Italian food and one of my sure. very favorites? <laughs> yes. Lasagna like Gate. Lasagna Gate, the final game, the penultimate, no, it was the final game of the uh, 2005-06 Premier League season uh, where Tottenham needed to equal Arsenal's result to take Arsene Wenger's precious fourth-place trophy and the Champions League spot. So a lot at stake here in this final game of the season. Tottenham were playing West Ham, and the night before the game, 10 of the team succumbed to food poisoning at their hotel. Mm. Mm. They subsequently lost to West Ham the next day. And across town, meanwhile, Arsenal beat Wigan. They got that fourth-place trophy. They were in the Champions League for the billionth season in a row. Uh, how how quaint it feels to say that about Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of this whole incident kind of stank of foul play and foul food. And the police were uh, called in to investigate at the hotel, which was in sort of the Docklands area. Um, why Tottenham need to stay in a hotel to go to a team a few miles away is another question. But they were um, there was no blame given to anyone. But this this has been as known as Lasagna Gate. And um, what do we think of this one? Is, is there any is there any method to this? Do we think that some some Arsenal supporting chefs well, were in the hotel that night? That's one of the theories. Is and and this feels like um, 
another like sort of loose analogy I'll draw is Daryl and I were doing like why Pele is so famous, and there's a story of Pele being declared like a national treasure, and thus he wasn't allowed to go play anywhere else in Brazil. And the aforementioned Henry Kissinger had to like negotiate to make that happen. But when we were looking into it, there's no act of Congress that we could ever find from Brazil saying he was a national treasure. There was no like rule in place. It just feels like a thing that was said and then repeated and repeated until it became the truth. Similar to this story in which. I have seen the early reporting when it was like uh, there was allegations that something untoward happened, that police were investigating, and then you look at it from the like the modern articles written more recently, and it's a an Arsenal supporting chef was on duty, and it's just like that seems like a thing that maybe like heard it through the grapevine. A game of telephone went from <laughs> I wonder if one of them liked Arsenal too. That chef definitely supported Arsenal and definitely poisoned Tottenham. Uh, I do just think that it's probably better for the hotel to blame it on the conspiracy rather than like unsafe food handling conditions. Uh, so maybe that's where some of this is coming from. But I'm inclined to believe that it was maybe a hotel not doing their due diligence and not doing the best job in terms of utilizing fresh produce to, uh, to feed the, uh, the patrons of that hotel. Have you seen the Paddington movies? I have not. So uh, uh, Donald, not Donald Gleeson, Brendan Gleeson plays um, the chef in prison. Uh-oh. Spoiler alert, Paddington goes to prison. Oh boy. Um, and I just picture this Arsenal chef being a really evil, grumpy chef with a big Arsenal badge on his, on his hat. And, you know, <laughs> dumping, dumping uh, lasagna onto people's plates from sort of six feet above their plate. So it splashes everywhere. Enjoy, fellas. If if somebody were to play a live action Swedish chef from the Muppets, like in the hat with the the kind of red beard, it would be Brendan Gleeson, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was. He, he's perfect in the role. He's really good. <laughs> and those panning, both Panties and movies are excellent, by the way. Even if you don't have kids, they're they're very worth watching. I'm trying to think of characters who I least expected to go to jail that went to jail. Paddington is probably number one. Ernest, number two. Harold and Kumar up there as well. (laughs) Harold and Kumar went to Guantanamo Bay. We know that. I'm trying to think who else. Like, from a lighthearted standpoint, not falsely convicted and uh, served 20 years before being exonerated. But, yeah, I think Paddington being in prison is is a slightly strange one that I didn't see coming. Uh, The Blues father in Arrested Development went to prison. (laughs) I think he had that coming. He did. He may have committed some light treason. Uh, I love that show. Don't love Jeffrey Tambor so much, but do love that show. Also, to your point about the food, it it does feel like Italian food. It's only two that I can think of, but Pizzagate and Lasagnagate, they do sort of lend themselves to gates, don't they? Yes. What's next? Would you rather be in... (laughs) Well, if you keep using your passport... Arancini Gate. It's uh, (laughs) uh, fried balls of dough were used instead of... Or fried balls of rice were used instead of soccer balls. It was Mm, very, very controversial. Love it. Uh, I've got another uh, another one from more more recent-ish history. Let's talk Ronaldo at the 98 World Cup. This is yeah. one of the most popular ones out there. Um, and it relates to the, the true stories. The true uh, points would be that uh, when the team sheets for the World Cup final between Brazil and France were first uh, released, Ronaldo, the famed Ronaldo striker, number nine, not included on the initial squad list. Then when the second ones came out, he was included, which led to a lot of speculation as to, in the moment, what had happened. Was there a row? Had something gone wrong? Had he been injured in training? Uh, There was some, I think, speculation that maybe he had had to have an injection in his knee, and that had been problematic. And then there was just the idea that, like, oh, it was just an error. They just, like, forgot to put his name on there. There was a typo, what have you. Uh, Since then, it has been, like, like revealed, essentially, that he, uh, the 
the one that I tend to believe uh, comes from Roberto Carlos, basically saying that Ronaldo had a fit, is what they call it, but it sounds like a seizure. Yes. Uh, and he uh, shook, he had convulsions, he was foaming at the mouth. Uh, teammate uh, Cesar Sampao had to like kind of reach in and dislo- dislodge Ronaldo's tongue to prevent him from swallowing it. I think you can't actually do that, but either way, Sampao, good can. work. Uh, okay, there we go. Uh, team doctor uh, Lidio Toledo thought something was seriously wrong. He took him away for neurological and cardiac tests, uh, but then those tests were all clear. Ronaldo was then allowed to play, but I think his teammates protested that. They felt like something wasn't right. Ronaldo himself like, like, seemed to not be in the right state of mind. He seemed to be a little bit out of it, not quite as focused as they came to expect, but he played anyway, and obviously it doesn't go well. They lose 3-0. He is supposedly the one who's supposed to be marking Zinedine Zidane on corners. Zidane scores off of a corner, so there's sort of the idea that Ronaldo uh, was like played against maybe the advice of his teammates but not the medical uh, personnel and thus Brazil did not do very well but mm. then Ryan I'm going to assume that you can take it from there there's another layer to this one that makes it a a true conspiracy as opposed to just Ronaldo had a medical incident but played soccer anyway well the reason why he was uh impugned to play that game mm-hmm. allegedly is that his sponsor and Brazil's sponsor Nike of Oregon uh, forced him to play. <laughs> you made that so Game of Thronesy for a moment there. <laughs> that was my intention. I like it. Um, uh, Nike forced uh, forced him to play in the game, even though he was clearly unfit and had, as you say, some convulsions and some seizures before the game. Now, I think this might have been blown out of proportion. I can imagine, like, say Nike's CEO or soccer CEO mm-hmm. is at a stadium and he's told that Ronaldo isn't playing. I can imagine him saying, I'd really like him to play. Yeah, And that being sort of Chinese whispered into Nike forced him to play. Because obviously Nike want him to play, the biggest superstar in the game, in the mm-hmm. biggest game. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, because I think that could be just, that, that could have just been something relatively innocent that yeah. has been exploded out into, he wouldn't, you know, he would have been in a hospital not for Nike making him get on that field. This one feels a bit more like watching, like, if you see some of the theories, Westworld really lends itself to this, where people are like, oh, there was, like, this cloud in the background looked like that, which is clearly meant to reference this, which was a reference Mm -hmm. itself to that. And you're just like, how are you all connecting these dots? And this feels a little bit more like maybe there are provisions in the contract itself like between Brazil and uh, Nike about, like, uh, star players must make X number of appearances or must play if fit or people have to be chosen or what have you. But the idea that like a Nike exec was in the locker room or in the hotel and knew what was happening, the idea that the Nike CEO would even like go down there and like demand that Ronaldo play, this feels more like Brazil wanted their best player in there, did everything they could to make that happen, and then maybe after the fact, there's a clause in a contract, people kind of connect some dots that weren't connected in the moment, and then you have it kind of grow from there. Uh, yeah. But you never know. I mean, that said, like we do know that money controls things, and money has a role in all things, so well, maybe it was that it was like they made more money from Ronaldo playing that game than they would have if they had won the game outright you've just touched on westworld there and maybe we could start a new conspiracy that the ronaldo bot misfunctioned there it is i mean that would explain the haircut in 2002 although (laughs) i think he has said it was to distract distract from a knee injury he knew everybody would talk about the haircut then he said it came from a kid's tv show but maybe it was just that he had a malfunction and like the rest of his hair didn't grow except for in that uh, weird triangle Maybe all Brazilians in that team were actually bots. You never know. And I'm, 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 uh, this is a, this is an aside, but in the new uh, series of Westworld, this isn't a spoiler. But Aaron Paul's character is called Caleb Nickel, which is also the name of the granddad in the OC. And that took me out of the room while I was watching Westworld. Um, wow. The, the other, <laughs> did you watch the OC? I did. It's been yeah. a while since I thought about the OC. Alan Dale, who was an Australian actor, who was also uh-huh. a Neighbours, an Australian sitcom. His his character had the same name. I was like, come on, pick a different name. He's always anyway, he's always business villain, right? He's That's always his business role? villain. Okay, that yeah. is. 
correct. He is yes. typecast for life as that. The other thing that is uh, floats around this 1998 final is that there are some people who believe that Brazil didn't show up to play in that game because they were promised a lot, a lot of cash mm-hmm. for the right to host a tournament within the next decade. Oh, um, right. So this is the idea that they like threw the game on purpose yeah. to allow France to win. There's a lot of like... To allow France to win, why? Because they needed to win, and and FIFA <laughs> wanted France. It's like, oh, okay. I feel like FIFA didn't really care that much about France. I do think there are other situations. I'm going to talk about one in a minute in which I think FIFA have a vested interest in certain teams doing well. But I wouldn't say France winning in France was necessarily one of those. Taylor, to quote uh, Hank Scorpio, "No one ever picks France." Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the the theory that theory does uh, ignore the fact that France were actually very strong that year. They yeah. did have Zidane; they were very good. They mm-hmm. had home advantage, of course, and it does ignore the theory that you know Brazil didn't get the tournament until 2014, which is quite a long way after '98. But it's out there. People, some people will say it. Long-term planning, my friend. All right, well, let's talk. Let's stick with World Cups. Let's talk that 2002 World Cup when Brazil did eventually win. Um, mm. But but the one that, that I don't even know if this is conspiracy as much as it is just sort of <laughs> a theory about this tournament, which is essentially that Korea received uh, favorable officiating uh, en route to their uh, semifinal uh, appearance. Uh, and I kind of buy into it. Uh, and I think a lot of this sort of goes back to, it's easy to forget, in fact, I didn't even know this until like uh, like a month ago, that uh, the initial bid was uh, one from Korea and one from Japan. Separate bids. They did not want to co-host. It was essentially why don't you all combine? You'll have a much better chance of getting it. So they did, but at the time they did not have the best diplomatic relations. There were disputes over land. Uh, they had very few treaties. I think this tournament forced them to sign uh, an extradition treaty. They did not have one of those prior to it. So there was a lot of sort of historical grievance between the two. And that's where the idea comes in that FIFA sort of wanted the tournament to be uh, in Asia. They wanted to sort of promote new markets. It's a criticism they always get. Uh, Mm -hmm. It relates to Qatar as well. And so they had then a vested interest in one of the host countries doing well. At that time, there was the streak of uh, every host country had made it out of the group stage. They didn't want that to to go by the wayside. And it doesn't. Japan, I believe, make it out, but get knocked out in the round of 16. Korea go on the deep run. And this is where the conspiracies come in because those games against Italy and Spain, my friend, are tough to watch uh, if you're trying to watch them from a neutral perspective. I remember at the time having no vested interest watching that game, and I ended up rooting for Italy, even though South Korea were the underdogs, even though Italy had the stronger team on paper. By the end of it, it just felt like, wow, they are being very hard done by. And then yeah. doubly so for Spain. But you have uh, a, a, a goal wrongly disallowed uh, for Damiano Tomasi. You have Francesco Totti sent off for diving when it was not a dive. He gets a second yellow card for diving. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a two-footed tackle on Zambrata that doesn't get punished. There's an elbow on Del Piero that doesn't get punished. Then... You have against Spain uh, two legitimate goals uh, overruled. Uh, that seems a little bit harsh. And then you have lots of uh, hard tackles on Spanish players that are not punished. And the thing that really lends some credence to this one, uh, going back to the Italy game, Ecuadorian referee uh, Byron Moreno, uh, basically he allowed a lot of physical challenge. Korea were a high-pressing, high-intensity. Uh, Italy got knocked around a lot. And there was some idea that, like, well, maybe he just like wanted a physical game and, and thought it, the Italians were diving. But then, uh, years later, Moreno was suspended by the Ecuadorian FA. Here's a quote for you. He was suspended by the FA after a first division match between Liga de, uh, Liga de Quito and Barcelona de Guayquil. Uh, after signaling six minutes of injury time in the game, he instead played 13, during yeah. which time home side Quito scored twice uh, to win 
7-4-3. He also awarded two hotly disputed penalties, sent off two players, and caused confusion by first awarding a goal and then disallowing it. Uh, he was suspended for 20 matches. FIFA opened an investigation into him. I believe he has not refereed any FIFA matches since then. So there's an idea. Uh, I think the Egyptian referee as well for the game against Spain. There was some, some sort of speculation that maybe he had a background in match fixing. I think the bigger thing, what this relates to, is European countries always feeling hard done whenever they're like playing in another country uh, be- or a World Cup in another country because I think there was complaints from England and from Spain and from Italy that it was like uh, not world-class referees. You've got one from Egypt. You've got one from Ecuador. They're not of the highest level. That's the European argument. And it's worth noting that South American countries argue the same thing, the exact same thing, whenever the World Cups are in Europe. Famously, Brazil... And I forget who the other side was in the 66 World Cup were very frustrated by the way uh, that World Cup went down and the officials chosen. So it's not just a uh, the World Cup is always great when it's in Europe and bad when it's elsewhere. But there's lots of speculation about 2002 in particular, the motives behind FIFA bringing it there and then sort of the run that South Korea goes on and how many decisions seem to go their way. So a lot of the theories we've spoken about today are crazy. Mm -hmm. Some are clutching at straws. Some are relying on sort of one person's account of things. This one, the evidence is there for the entire world to see. It's pretty much there. Yeah, you you look <laughs> at some of those challenges from some of those games, and it is, even for the time period, uh, Daryl and I, uh, for Soccer 101, uh, I'm guessing that episode will be out by the time most people have heard this, but we went back and watched the 2000, 2005 Champions League final. Mm. between uh, Milan and Liverpool. Very interesting game, uh, but really physical. There's a lot of like aggressive challenging in there, and it's a reminder that the game has changed. But even by that standard, these two games are sort of absurd with how much people get knocked around and how few calls are given. Yeah. I remember watching that game in a pub in Southampton, that, fi- that 2005 final. One of Ooh. the first times I met my now wife, isn't that oh, fun? There you go. All right, yeah. pubs in Southampton. But you, yeah. your wife is American, so is she studying abroad? My or wife she not is American? not American. Oh, I thought she was. Nope. Oh, so that's just Daryl? That's just Daryl who mar- marries Americans? Correct. I've married an English person. We both <laughs> came over together. Well, there you go. Um, I will add one more little thing about this one before we move on. Like, I don't know why this only just occurred to me. Sometimes my brain doesn't make obvious connections. But there there was frustration about the 2002 World Cup being uh, in Asia. Obviously, there's frustration about Russia and, and the, like, the political situation there. Uh, you're giving legitimacy to Vladimir Putin. Then 2022, obviously, and there's this idea that, like, well, they're not, like, soccer supporting nations. They don't have a lot of fandom. And it's kind of easy to overlook that the USA gets the World Cup in 1994 without having an actual soccer league in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did sort of benefit from that sort of FIFA trying to spread the game mentality in 94 and then very quickly became like, how dare you play it in non-traditional footballing nations, even though we call it soccer. Uh, but that's a whole different can of worms that I don't feel like going into because soccer is a legitimate term as is football. Whatever. Sure. I ain't <laughs> arguing with that. Uh, do you have any more, Ryan? Uh, so there's a, there's a good little Reddit thread that came out a few weeks ago where a mm-hmm. few of these are on. Um, and there's a couple on there which are interesting about um, draws. Like Obviously, there's the, there's the one about Champions League uh, yeah. draw with the warm balls and how yeah. uh, UEFA determine uh, the matches before they're even picked out. And there's, you know, those, all those, there's always those conspiracies where they do a test draw and it's the correct results that have come out like a day before yeah. and the graphics that leak and stuff. And there's this one that's interesting that Millwall, uh, aforementioned Strava users Millwall get around 90% of home draws in English Cups. Uh, the last two away draws they've had were against London teams because the police do not like Millwall fans to travel because they're scallywags, Taylor. They get in trouble. 
Um, maybe, maybe that's why their their data is open, so police can know where they are at all times. <laughs> that's a good, very good point. But also, the Scalyawake fans know where they are at all times, so maybe oh it, it can backfire. Yeah. There's also a theory which I thought was interesting. I never thought about. There are so many coppers. Coppers America or Copper Americas? <laughs> uh, Copa's America, I guess, right? Copa's America sounds fun. Uh, there's so many of those things because they're trying to give Messi another chance of actually getting a proper international trophy outside of the Olympics. So, um, you know, they've had them in 2015, 2016, 2019. There was one scheduled for this summer as well, but there's not. But they keep just hammering those things out to keep shoving Messi in the direction of uh, actually doing something in those colors. And and one day it may well work. Uh, a couple honorable mentions for me. Uh, the biggest one of like my lifetime that I really remember being confused by in the moment was John Harks getting dropped from the 98 World Cup squad. Uh, captain for life, John Harks, that is. Uh, but that's no longer conspiracy theory because we know what happened there. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that one because it was such a weird moment and it's such a strange like talking point for so long. And then it became clear why he was kicked off. You can read more about that or hear more about that in many other places. Um, then the two that sort of like our quick mentions for me but worth discussing are the deliberate missing of penalties uh steven gerrard supposedly uh deliberately missed a penalty because he did not enjoy roy hutchins time at liverpool uh i think he knew that missing a penalty would probably uh like force hutchins closer to the sack so there's that one the one that Daryl, I believe, legitimately believes, as do many American fans, is that Clint Dempsey deliberately missed a penalty in World Cup qualifying against Mexico. The scoreline at the time was 2-0, dos acero. If he scores, it makes it 3-0, so it kind of breaks that tradition uh, in World Cup qualifying. So Dempsey deliberately missed to keep the scoreline 2-0. Uh, oh. Daryl buys into that one. He's not here to defend himself. I will just say everything I have ever heard or read or know about Clint Dempsey tells me that he does not care about that stuff. He cares about scoring goals and winning. And I really don't think Clint Dempsey would deliberately miss just to preserve a scoreline in that moment, that's a lot of for, like forethought and foresight. The idea, I think, is that American fans were chanting Dos Acero, and that inspired mm-hmm. him to miss it. But uh, I feel like he just sort of had a weird moment, missed a shot, and then it became an easy narrative. Uh, but maybe Daryl will take issue with me if and when he hears this part of the Does, show. Doesn't Daryl know that 2-0 is the most dangerous lead? Come on. <laughs> you can't risk it, man. You can't risk it. Even though I think it was like the 93rd minute. But it doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, Ryan, I appreciate you delving deep into the corners of the internet to find uh, some pretty solid conspiracies. I'm sure there are some out there that we miss, so we look forward to your emails. Uh, feel free to tweet us if you've got some of your own. Uh, maybe, maybe hopefully slightly coherent as opposed to like one wall of all caps text about how Set Bladder is actually like a reptilian humanoid or something like that. I want to uh, hear some, um, I want some TSS conspiracy theories as well. There's one. There is one that Daryl is a closet Liverpool fan. I've seen that on Reddit. That he's uh, like he has like Liverpool sympathies, um, and like and that's rooted in I think Wolves being so bad for so long that like he chose another team. Uh, but maybe he just makes positive comments about Liverpool. I will say Daryl's loyalties seem to be Wolves, uh, England, U.S. national team in that order, and maybe sometimes U.S. is first. Those are the kind of three rooting interests that I know of with Mr. Grove. Interesting. I know the mm-hmm. conspiracy theory that you're actually from Wolverhampton. You put that accent on. <laughs> I think I have long. I mean, that is true. I have long uh, held that Daryl is actually from Wisconsin, and he's just faking the accent, <laughs> pretending to have these connections to the Midlands. Because uh, it is a place that, like, if you said London, I feel like people would be like, "Oh, where from? I've been to London." But like, who's been to Birmingham? Who's been to Dudley or wherever uh, wherever Daryl is from? That's not Dudley. Place, is it? Dudley. <laughs> 
I mean, in Peaky Blinders, this taught me that there's no discernible accent in Birmingham either, that you can just be from anywhere and you will be sound like you're from Birmingham. So, oh, I've, um, By the way, I know you've been reviewing the English game. I, had, mm-hmm. I, I haven't listened deliberately because I've only watched the first episode. But in the first episode, one of the women from Peaky Blinders is in it playing someone with a very regal posh old, old Etonian accent. And it's weird to hear go from that, from, from the year Birmingham that she was doing <laughs> Peaky Blinders. <laughs> is it, who's the character? Uh, the blonde-haired lady who was um, the crazy one's wife in Peaky Blinders. I can't remember anyone's <gasps> characters' names. I forgot about that. Yeah. The one that keeps messing with me, I said this on, on the show, but just so it will ruin it for you, Ryan, since you've watched Game of Thrones, do you remember Ramsay Bolton's like insane uh, like mistress who skins people alive and hunts people for fun? Yes. That is Alma, uh, Arthur Kinnaird's wife in that in uh, English game. And it always oh. creeps me out a little bit because I keep waiting for Ramsay Bolton to show up and like stab Lord Kinnaird or something like that. I knew I recognized her. There we go. I knew yep. I recognized her from somewhere. All right. Well, I will stop jabbering so you can go <laughs> finish the English game and tell me more about where you know people from. Uh, but until then, Ryan, you'll be back next week. But I've enjoyed very much Conspiracies and I'm going to take my tin hat off now. Very much. Uh, I've enjoyed it too, and I've enjoyed uh, the, the future arm references that we've dropped in here as well. That's as a, have I. As blast. have I, my friend. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you very much. You got a slice of-